Hello and welcome to Food To Go, the podcast brought to you by the New Food Magazine. It's my very first intro, usually Bethan does these. Um, joined, as ever, by my co-host, well I say as ever, so yeah. it second, second one. Second time lucky, yeah. Second time lucky. Um, great, how are you doing? I'm really well, Josh, how are you? I'm, I'm alright, thank you, I'm alright. It's um, Obviously we discussed the weather in every New Food podcast, it's kind of a bit of a tradition. Got a lot colder this week in the UK, hasn't it? Yeah, we went for a walk around the office today and we had to come only to one lap <laughs> because it was absolutely freezing. We're like, listeners obviously won't know, but we're based in the Kent countryside, so surrounded by sort of farm fields. You get the odd cow, don't you, wandering past? Odd cow, odd tractor. Odd tractor. It's quite idyllic, isn't it? It's quite nice, yeah. especially in the summer. So, anyway, long story short, for a lot of our meetings, we try and have a little stroll around the office, don't we? Because it's quite a nice break, but yeah. not so today. It would be in the summer. Not in freezing, November. Freezing today. Yeah, it's got a lot colder. Hey, been Chris, what have you been up to? Writing news and articles, really. Been covering food inflation more than we'd like to. I know, I know. It's just the topical well, issue. Well, obviously, that LinkedIn, I post, that LinkedIn post yesterday, the day before. Yeah. Every month, we get the news through that the inflation, this is the UK we're speaking about here, although it's quite similar in the US and certainly in Europe. Every month, we get the kind of notification that the UK inflation figures have been, have been published. Mm. And day every month... I said to Grace, this is, this is it. This is the last month. Yeah. It's the last month we'll write inflation is record high and every single month it's, it's higher again, isn't it? It's hard writing headlines now because you just feel like you've read it before but it's a new stat we've got to cover. It's, yeah, it's not, um, it's a lot of, it's not much good news at the moment, is there? Every, yeah. I feel like everything I send across to you is kind of <laughs> depressing yeah. news. Yeah, What's been your favourite story this since we last recorded. Well, HelloFresh has launched in Spain, which yes, is really exciting. that's interesting. That's very exciting to see how they get on there. I'm interested to see how they get on in a culture that's quite... I don't know if you've ever been to Spain or... or well, I'm going or, next or week. You're going next week. But um, <laughs> a real cult, like cooking, is a massive part of Spanish culture. It's perhaps more so, arguably more so than other European countries. And food is such an emotional thing. So yeah. I wonder how the convenience aspect of HelloFresh is going to perform there. Going out and buying food is quite a communal, it's quite an emotional thing. Well, I think for Spaniards, food prep, it's like, it's really key to them. So them being able to cook in their home the way they like with ingredients provided to them, I think that's almost better. Do you think? See, I yeah. wonder, I'm not sure. I think it's going to go the other way. Because you know the paella, there's like a special technique and you have to put the rice in a certain formation in the pan. So... I didn't know this. I just uh, chuck it all in the pan. And you have to put... Um, seasoning on in a cross shape I think do you really? yeah I had a pilot cooking course once Ooh, it was that, in Spain so it wasn't apparently so apparently so is it one of them good luck things or whatever or? yeah might be superstition maybe yeah I don't know if that's going to work I just feel like whenever I've been to Spain shopping such a massive not shopping as such but food and I don't know the whole culture around buying food funny enough we had our event Food Safety Live well when this goes out be a few weeks ago but last night and I was chatting to um, Elish Leitner from Gorat University. Mm. So he's based in Austria. We were discussing the differences between certainly like UK habits and some European countries' habits. So in the UK, we're totally based around supermarkets. Like we just go right. to the supermarket and get everything. Yeah. It's not the case in Europe. Like there's kind of independent grocery shops still. You go to see the butcher. Yeah. Exactly. Obviously, there are supermarkets and they play a massive role. But there are yeah. still, especially in Spain, there's still that... If you are listening, you are from Spain or living in Spain, do do write in if we're mm. chatting rubbish. Yeah. Maybe we are. But I, don't, I just don't know how they're going to get on over there, HelloFresh. Maybe, maybe, I'm sure they'll do well. They're a massive company. But. Well, with that, I think it might be an age thing in the UK as well. Because I know my nan does go to the butcher to get her meat. Really? So, still? Yeah. But I think it is more convenient because supermarkets just have it all now. Yeah, they do. There's just so much, isn't there? Um, I suppose really we should speak about what we've, uh, yeah, what we've we come should. on to speak about. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... I've been away for last 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 week or so. Um, managed to get some cracking interviews at Efost in Dublin. I'm very jealous that you went. What to Dublin or to Efost? Yes, to Dublin. <laughs> well, both, but mostly Dublin. Dublin's wicked, isn't it? It's a great city. Never been before. You've been before that, haven't you? So. Yeah, a few years ago, but it's definitely on my agenda to go back. No, it's an amazing city. If you're listening, you've not been. It's definitely worth your time. Um, <laughs> so friendly, so atmospheric. Love a bit of history, did a little history walking tour on Sunday night. You're um, forgetting Temple Bar here. Temple Bar obviously is a big one. Um, an area of Dublin which is known for its pubs. It's history too, but mainly it's pubs. There is a pub which is the Temple Bar, which I found out isn't actually that, it's not that old. It's only like the 70s that was made. Oh, so yeah. have they made a name for themselves then? Well, Temple Bar, is like, there was 
I think there used to be a, like a church, a temple, like a yeah, church, yeah. and then Temple Bar in like, the area of Dublin. There was a bar next to the temple, right? But that actual building is not Temple Bar; is just the area. That actual oh, yeah, the street where all the bars are. Yeah, that's that area of Dublin's yeah. Temple Bar. Um, that was great. I did pay you. Oh, I'll tell you, it was like eight euros eight fifty euros. Oh, for a Guinness. That. For a Guinness. <laughs> was a good Guinness, not as good as some of the others. do like the Guinness, so... Yeah, um, I can't say I'm a Guinness connoisseur, but baby Guinness, I can get behind that. I know it's, it's very the different, same thing, is it? It's not, what's that, but... What's in that? Team Maria and... Is it... Oh, I don't know what the actual How spoon is. How can you say you like it? You don't well, I don't know. I, Josh, I don't ask for the ingredients <laughs> list when I'm at the bar. Right, I'm going to be honest. You're on new food now. You should. You should. <laughs> anyway, yes. EFOST stands for European Federation of... Food Science and Technology, I think. You think? Um, I think. Um, I'm sure. It's the European Federation of Food Science and Technology. And they host their event um, every year, which draws scientists, academics from across Europe and indeed the world. A couple of um, speakers sort of from, from further afield there as well, discussing uh, such a wide range of topics. I mean, I have never seen a more packed agenda. Really? It was, yeah. I mean, it was, there could have been four of us there when we would have seen everything. It was, there was so much. And unfortunately, Loads of it happening at the same time, so it's really, really oh, picky, no. and like, which is a great fit. I mean, the agenda yeah. was fantastic, but then you have to really choose yeah. where you go. It was at the Aviva Stadium, formerly Lansdowne Road, which is the Irish Rugby Stadium, which again, you enjoyed that. all over that. Loved it, loved it. Um, it's a, an amazing venue, an amazing conference. Um, yeah, I learned so much. Wow. Did you have any favourite bits from the event, standout bits? Yeah, I did have a couple that I really, really enjoyed. Um, off the top of my head, I really enjoyed, so... The very first keynote session was delivered by um, Tom Arnold, and I wrote about it for New Food actually about the new, what's say new, the most recent Irish food strategy. Right. Ireland's quite a small country, quite in terms both in terms of area and in population. Mm-hmm. Um, massively important food and beverage producer though yeah. for the world. Um, often, I mean, I've had a couple of people refer to Ireland as the food island. In, yeah. Um, Ireland, yes, of course, in at, at the event. And that strategy is really interesting because they're going to essentially attempt to be a leader on sustainable food systems by 2030, really? which is really, really interesting. Um, and they're, they're, they're incorporating what they call a, a whole system approach. So uniting everything across the chain rather than just developing a, like a food strategy and moving on. It, like, mm-hmm. it's, it's holistic. Mm-hmm. So anyway, you can read about our new food. So that was really, really great. Um, Another great keynote by Professor Jenny McDiarmid from Aberdeen University on nutrition and kind of what happens, both sustainability linked as well, but what happens when we remove things from our diet. So there were some points in there which I found really, really fascinating. So for example, everyone knows we should eat less meat and that's like yeah. all and good, but depending on what we replace that meat with, it's not actually as sustainable. Yeah. So I think, I, I, I might be misquoting this, but I'm, I'm sure she pointed out the fact that even if you were to adhere to the European, this actually was a different a different talk. It wasn't Jenny's. I should make that clear, yeah. but it's linked. Um, one of the other speakers mentioned that if if you um, were to adhere to the the kind of nutritional guidelines that most European countries give, so I think in the UK it's like the healthy plate or the, mm-hmm. the, the, you know the kind of the the the, the mandated diet, like the ideal diet. The eat well plate. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. The eat well plate. That's the one. Um, I'm not like, Ireland's got its own version, so it's France, so Spain, etc. If you adhere to those in most European countries, you actually your greenhouse gas emissions for your diet wouldn't change. Really? Yeah, because you're eating certain things like vegetables, fruits that are like quite farming into agriculture intensive. Oh. So that was fascinating. Um, so where do you think this narrative's coming from then? That it's a lot better from the environment, or do you reckon it's just an assumption from the public? Um, it's a great question. I think. It's quite a deep question. No, no, it's a great question. I think there is a certain narrative that's been pushed. The narrative that's been pushed is that meat's bad. Yeah. And like, there's no doubt, I'm like, again, Food Safety Live yesterday, Peter Emmerich was um, from University of East Anglia was speaking fantastically about this. We have to reduce our meat intake. As, yeah. like, in the global north, he mentioned, like, the global north is a term for more economic developed countries, shall we say. We have to reduce our meat intake. I think that's like, everyone understands that. But depending on what you replace it with, that's the interesting bit, and this narrative of meat's bad, carbs is the big one. Everyone's really? carbs bad. Like every, the narrative about carbs bad, eating yeah. carbs. It's not really the case. Like yeah. obviously, if you eat chips every single day, you're not very healthy. But yeah. carbs aren't. Carbs have become such a villain in our diet, and really, they're not. They're good for you. They, you need them. And yeah. So that I was think really these diets where you cut out just one food group, I just think they're quite problematic, to be honest. 
Yeah, they are. They are. They're not holistic, are they? No. Um, so you, you are right. There is a narrative. Um, I've not done this justice at all. So you have to go and check out, um, check out some of the things we've written about on new food um, and my stuff from Ethos to, yeah, to learn definitely. more. Um, but no, really, really interesting. The other thing I want to mention, my other favourite bit, I suppose, um, was a session delivered by Jessica Denneha from RMIT University in Australia. Right. So she flew all the way from Australia yeah. to go to Air Force. It's an amazing commitment. I think she had been working in Italy for the last couple of weeks before oh, that. Okay. So, um, it's not that big Maybe I should have mentioned that. I should have mentioned she flew from <laughs> Melbourne. Um, but about insect, like insect diets and how consumers have consumer attitudes to eating insects. Mm. See, exactly. <laughs> they've done it's so- like I'm a celebrity. Like, I just don't think... No, but it's really interesting. So... Um, her, her and her team have done a lot of work surveying Australian consumers and a lot of people have eaten insects before already and to explain which again I suppose is natural a lot of Australians particularly young Australians holiday in Southeast Asia because yeah. it's, it's not oh, okay. as far and yeah. that's a lot more it's a lot more part of it's a lot more common in the diet there than it is here yeah um, hang on what insects are we talking here uh, oh there's loads I mean witchy grub which um, literally grub uh but, but again, she broke it down per, and her study broke it down per insect. So like, what would people eat? So uh, interestingly, moths, I think, were like the least liked, which I get. Like, well, there's not ones. much to a moth, I'm going to be honest. But then the most liked, I think, probably is where, I, where we see insects going in diet is things like insect flour. So right. eating, I mean, will we ever get to the way eating whole insects? Like, I'm not sure we'll ever get there. Yeah, but no. I do see us eating insect-based flour. Yeah. Where it's ground, that insect's ground down to flour. I absolutely see that. Mm-hmm. But again, another aspect to this, um, which I think this was Professor McDermott um, from Aberdeen, there's all sorts of food safety issues related to insects because they're bioaccumulators. Right. So they absorb things like heavy metals. Oh, God. And obviously... The amount of heavy metal, say, let's, let's pick cadmium out of here. The amount of cadmium you'd get from eating one moth, for example, mm-hmm. and I'm just making this up by the way, mm-hmm. wouldn't be a lot. But obviously, if you're eating insect flour, you're eating thousands of insects yeah. in like your, your bread, yeah. so it'll be pasta, and so that all accumulates. Exactly the same reason why dolphins and whales get plastic pollution pollution because they're accumulators, they eat so many fish, right? But do these concerns outweigh the nutritional value? Like. Are insects good for you? Well, it goes well. I think there are certainly some question marks over their nutritional value, but I think it goes back to what we've been saying for the last how many weeks, ever since Twickenham, the Food Safety Conference. It's that yeah. argument of sustainable versus safe, isn't it? It's, yeah. It's, I mean, we, I get, but there's question marks over sustainability as well. We've got, you'd have to, question marks everywhere. The question marks everywhere. We don't know. Um, it's certainly an option, and I think we'll see it, but that was really interesting. It's the first time I've ever seen studies on consumer appetite in what I would call a western, I mean Australia on, on, the, on the old school map, Australia's just about as yeah. far as you can get, but in terms of cultural or global north, in a global north country it's the first study I've ever seen done on appetite for eating insects and I'm very surprised by how many people said yeah do you want to give it a go? Well it could be the first of many in that case then. Well yeah we'll see, I mean would you eat insects? Personally I wouldn't but you can go first. Not even flour? No, I just, no. But if you never even saw the insects, it's just like you're eating pasta and it's just insect pasta, you'd never, like... Josh, I can't eat cold pasta, let alone pasta cold with pasta. insects. Yeah. Oh, I'd, <laughs> I'd eat... Would I, like, eat a whole witchy grub? I'm not, like, I'm not sure, but... I probably would eat pasta, like... Or bread, flour, certainly. I think I would, yeah. Well, if you try it, let me know what you think. I'll let you know what you and think. And if you approve, I'll consider... Yeah, give it a go, give it a go. Anyway, that's they were my favourite, so that's a very long answer to your question. Um, I did manage to grab some... Some speakers for a couple of interviews. Um, first up, great friend of New Food, Ronan Gormley. I mean, Ronan's fantastic. Um, yeah. He's a fantastic writer. He's written for New Food so many times. You can check out his work, some of our previous issues, and on our website too. Um, always a pleasure to speak to Ronan. Um, we did speak about the rugby for a little bit, which I think you heard. But yeah, but that's all part. Of that's the all event, part of it. That's all part of it. All part of the event. Um, so yeah, let's hear what Ronan had to say. So we actually had some problems with the audio for Ronan's interview. So I'm going to introduce it now. I'm I'm back in the studio, not outside a windy Aviva Stadium, as I'm sure you can probably hear. Um, so the next voice you'll hear will be Ronan Gormley's, and he's going to go straight in talking about Ireland's famous win over South Africa at that very stadium the Saturday before we spoke. Don't worry, there is plenty of food and beverage industry chat in there too for those of you who don't like rugby. So over to Ronan. Yeah. 
Uh, very well, thank you indeed. Yes, it was a wonderful match. It was a very physical match, and the score was very tight. We only won by three points. The two scrum halves, the opposing scrum halves, were really, really brilliant. And they, when they came on in the second half, it really livened things up in a big way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I could stand here and talk about rugby all day, but we are here in a professional capacity today. Here at FOS, are you enjoying this week's conference? Yes, I'm enjoying the FOS conference very much. I've been at quite a number of them, and... Uh, there, you meet old friends, you meet new friends, and it's, a, it's an excellent conference all around, a great mix of different science and technology aspects of food. Uh, it's also a young person's conference. Uh, when you look at the attendance... Uh and Ronan, what are you working on at this moment in time? You're, you're, you're always a writer, a keen contributor to new food. You've always got something on the go. So, so what are you researching at the moment? Well, I'm, I'm semi-retired, but I still have some student groups. I, I work with product development with them. And at the moment, we're looking at a, a product which is uh, it's, it's, it's a prawn product, but there's only 10% prawns in it. The rest is, is, is whiting. And uh, we put in a thing called sun fibre to raise the fibre level. And then, of course, we have this little bottle with a potent prawn flavour. And that only goes in at 0.1 to 0.3%. It's very, very strong indeed. So as we speak, I hope today, the students are looking at different levels of this and decide which level they're going to use it. Will 0.1 do to give a good prawn flavour? Or will they have to put in uh, 0.3%? Of course, the reason we're using whiting as, as an extender, if you like, for prawn is because it's hugely cheaper. Prawn is about 24 euros a, a kilogram. Uh, whiting is about 12 euros a kilogram. We wanted to use blue whiting, which is a, a fish it's quite abundant in Ireland and well it's abundant in the Atlantic and it comes ashore in, in 12 kilogram blocks but uh, we got one of these 12 kilogram blocks it's only three euros a kilogram so it's a very cheap fish if you were able to use it but the fish size is rather small so when you when you fillet it and, and uh, the fillet yield is, is, is quite small so we had to abandon using this uh, very plentiful but and cheap fish uh, so we had to switch then to ordinary whiting which which is about four times uh, more expensive but the prawn product would still be relatively cheap because the whiting is only half the price of the prawns absolutely is that something that you think you can scale up in, in, in action so that we could see that on on, on on shop shelves in the future well scale up would be would be very easy it's just uh, you just blend the, the different ingredients together and uh, you you steam them in, in, in a steamer and we, we have them in a little mold a little bread loaf mold so you get a, a, a gel out which you can slice uh, it, it would be very I suppose you could call it a terrine and then you can serve that as in, in a slices uh, with marie-rose sauce or other things like that or you can do a lot of things with it yeah so it would be very easy to step this up sounds delicious just one last word on on FOS. As, as, as a native of, of Dublin of Malahide and, and a researcher at the University College it must be a real privilege and a real honour to see FOS return back to Dublin for what was it 10 years since it's been here yeah it, it was it, it's 10 or 12 years since it was here so it, of course it rotates around different countries but Ireland has always been prominent in food science circles we are of course the, we call ourselves the food island because uh, agriculture and food are such a big part of our, 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 our economy. Uh, we're pushing the frontiers of food uh, all, all, all the time. We have some analytical labs now that can detect very trace quantities of impurities in dairy products, which are being used, say, in infant, infant formulae and so on. They can detect down to one or two parts per billion of chlorates, whereas, uh, you know, in, 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 in infant prior products, I think you're allowed about 10. Um, uh, parts per billion max but these people can analyze down to two one or two parts per billion so this is a huge safety barrier if you like it's, it's, it's a huge uh, moat around uh, food safety moat uh, around the food system yeah absolutely Ren, let's get back inside it's quite chilly here isn't it it's quite windy so we'll get back inside and grab a coffee i'm, I'm quite warm I'm, i've been excited by this privilege <laughs> <laughs> not at all Ren, thank you so much <laughs> okay So Grace, what did you think of what Ron had to say? I thought it was really interesting, especially the fact that he said there was lots of young people at the event, which was really promising. Yeah, very young event. I mean, actually, the Monday morning, so the, the conference went round Monday to Wednesday. The Monday morning was Young Ethos Day, so it's, oh, okay. it's, it's all for young people in the food and beverage industry. That's a theme that I heard also from one of our speakers um, or interviewees, which you'll, you'll hear in just a few minutes. But I heard that from a lot of people. It's a young, it's a very young conference. I haven't been to a fair few food and beverage conferences. And there's nothing wrong with this, but often the audience is, is, is a fair bit older, it's a bit yeah, maturer. Yeah. Um, nothing wrong with that at all, but you need balance, right? You need, yeah. you need young people, you need, you need people that are a bit older. Um, they bring with them completely different perspectives. 
And also because they're currently studying at the moment, they're going to kind of know all the up-to-date studies and know what's actually going on in the industry at the moment. Yeah, exactly. And like you said about HelloFresh, I think the way we interact with food is so different, depending on how perhaps how old you are. I think it's something that's massively changed from generation to generation. Well, opinions on food change, like kind of preferences for food and what's popular with different generations. What's valuable. I mean, take, take... Yeah. Take like take, take vegan, take alternative protein. I mean, yeah. that's there's massive segmentation between older generations, younger generations on that. So yeah. yeah, really, really great to see. Really, really interesting. Um, yeah, Ronan's fantastic, isn't he? He's fantastic yeah, he's speaker. Great, great lovely, interview. lovely guy. And yeah, good chat about the rugby. He was playing on the beach for Africa at the weekend, so he was uh, he was happy. And he's doing some great work with with seafood. I don't know if you picked up on that. Yeah, no, yeah I did. really he interesting. Did really yeah. interesting. Um, I won't spoil that too much because I think he's going to write a couple of bits of new food on that. So, uh, oh, great. But yeah, so really, really little, interesting. Little sneak peek. Little sneak peek. Yeah. But um, yeah, fantastic to speak to Ronan. I also managed to grab John Spink, who is going to be speaking at Food Integrity US in oh. January 2023. So make sure you get that in your diaries. You can find all the details on the new food website. Um, so John's going to be speaking about cybersecurity at Food Integrity US. But I suppose his his main area of study, his main passion is food fraud. Yeah. Um, so let's hear what John's got to say, shall we? Yeah, thanks. So I'm once again stood outside the marvellous Aviva Stadium where the sun has got its hat on, which certainly wasn't the case last night. We got soaked and I'm joined by John Spink from Michigan State University. John, you've travelled a little bit further than some to this conference, haven't you? Yeah, it's great to get over here. There's so much going on in Europe that's that's you know really focused on European activities, but we're so far away that uh, sometimes I miss out on it. So it's great to be here. Absolutely. As a professor in the US, you mentioned there, how important is it for you to get over to events in Europe and how much interaction does the European food industry have with what goes on in the United States? Well, really, we're in a national, we're, we're in a global marketplace and food really comes from everywhere and goes to everywhere. So we have to be looking at it at a global uh, scale. So there's a lot going on in Europe, but it is looking at, at you know, that, that product that's being imported. And, uh, you know, I find that just to be here, to be in Asia, to be in Africa, to be in South America is really, really key to understanding you know, that shifting fraud opportunity. Absolutely. Now, you're speaking in just a little bit, aren't you, um, at FOS, but I have seen a little sneak preview of a presentation which you were very, very kind to send to me. The first slide, I think, will turn some heads. You claim that counterfeiters attend conferences like this to get the inside track. Do you really think that's true? Why wouldn't fraudsters and criminals go someplace to learn how it would be easier to commit fraud because we're the food authenticity uh this week is 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 really food authenticity food science the testing of the quality of product how how we look at uh, um, anomalies or problems or 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 fraud occurs and then later this week i'm at interpol operation option which is looking at law enforcement now it's a little harder for them to get in there but still they're going to be researching us to find more efficient ways to commit fraud so with that in mind is there a risk that food and beverage manufacturers can be, can be tri- too transparent. Are we giving away our secrets? Well, the key is that we're looking at it from a food science standpoint and a microbiology standpoint. You know, you know of course, you know, the chemical toxins as well. But the thing is that, that E. coli evolves, but very slowly. And E. coli is not an intelligent adversary. That's not a problem for social scientists and criminologists. They're, they've been dealing with humans and the study of humans and consumers and the, and the criminal as, as an individual for forever. So the key is that we're looking at it as this, this evolving bad guy. Also, when we say counterfeiters attend counter, anti-counterfeit conferences as a warning, you know, look around the room, people laugh. <laughs> they think that's a joke. It's not. And, and the real key is that everything we do, the bad guys can find out. We publish. They don't even have to come to the conference. They can read the, the proceedings. They can read the articles. But there's not a shelf life on secrets. And that's something we have to think about. We don't tell them everything that we're doing, but we need the bad guys to know that we've got a lot of activity going on, a lot of uh, really coordination. When we talk about coordination and uh, working together in the shelf life of secrets, the key is that we want the bad guys to know that we're looking. If you put a new system in place, all you're going to do is catch food fraud. The goal is not to catch food fraud. The goal is to prevent it from occurring in the first place. So we need to let them know we've got new things going on, but we keep a few things to ourselves. And then we keep evolving. We keep evolving. We expand the programs. We try to understand how they're committing fraud, more advanced uh, activities, and then we can respond along the way. We want them just to know that we are looking and there's a good chance that they're going to get caught. So coverage is like FOS, I suppose, like Bobby's on the beat. They're like sitting the police on the street corner. 
Absolutely. So we, we talk about the crime triangle and looks at the victims. So that could be a retailer, could be a food company, could be a government. We talked about the fraudsters, but there's really a near infinite number of fraudsters. It's not like there's 10 in the world and we go arrest eight of them. <laughs> uh, pretty much, you know, you think about crime or temptation uh, is out there. But the side we can work on is the guardian and hurdle gaps. And so when we say the, you know, a hurdle is like hurdle technology, that we're trying to put things in place that lead, make it harder for the bad guys to, to commit the crime. But the gap analysis is us. It's the food scientists. It's the criminal researchers getting together to look at really what we can do. On the flip side, then, if we are accepting that, look, the information's out there and it's easily accessible, are we better off as an industry being going the opposite way and being totally transparent, totally open, and just leave nowhere, no, no dark places left to hide? Is that the approach that you would necessarily recommend? Or? Well, we don't want to let everybody know everything that we're doing all the time. But again, we have to consider that there's a shelf life of secrets. So we ha- either, either we can complain about it and you know uh, wave our fists and gnash our teeth, or we can just basically accept it and understand that we do need to keep evolving so we have to stay a step ahead and that's something that we're just going to have to do john one thing i wanted to ask you it's something that i've heard from a few different people um both this week and and previously do you see the risk of food fraud increasing even further as supply chains get even more stretched and as, as, as food gets expensive and people are looking for cheaper options do you see an angle there for forces to exploit well, we could have a whole hour to talk about <laughs> risk versus vulnerability versus threat versus hazard. There's a couple of my colleagues specifically that we have that discussion. The key is that the underlying threats and hazards are constantly changing, but they've always been constantly changing. Now we have inflation, we have Ukraine, Russia, we have a lot of things going on around the world. So if we're looking at the world and looking at the scenarios that are, are constantly changing, then then we're, we're not really surprised by that. And, and so if we do the same old things the same way, then we're going to have a problem. If you're exercising more, then you might have a hamstring problem. If you start to uh, smoke cigarettes or something else, you might have a lung problem. Those are just different problems. And the basic health is the key that we're looking at overall. Absolutely. Last thing, John, you're presenting at Food Integrity US in January on cybersecurity. We are really, really excited for that event and for that panel. What would you say to food and beverage manufacturers who, one, consider cybersecurity as not really part of their remit in terms of food safety, or two, are reluctant to come public and be more open about their experiences with cyber attacks? Well, cybersecurity is something I see as very parallel to the ideas of food fraud prevention because it's a new new problem. The food industry says, we have to do something about it. We have to lead. And really, when you look at cybersecurity and the, the uh, standards, and, and NIST is in the U.S. or whatever, is that it's saying rely on the experts for the expert work. So you wouldn't expect your cybersecurity team to become food safety experts. And likewise, you're not a, 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 a cybersecurity IT expert. So uh, to jump to the, uh, the conclusion, this is not a Harry Potter book and I'm saving the, you know, I'm, 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 uh, spoiler alert. Number one is if you're a food safety manager or supply chain manager, ask your IT department to do a survey of the risks of your products, of your, of your equipment. And then when they have updates, happily implement them. Don't complain. Everybody, we all complain, you know, when you get that update and, and, and support that uh, along the way. That's a really the, the way to start. And the third is then to keep pushing until you're comfortable that the system is, is c- protecting food safety in your company. Do you think that we're transparent as, a, as an industry when we talk about cybersecurity? Cybersecurity is new. We don't know what it is. I mean, it's interesting. It was like sustainability 15 years ago. People said, oh, we want to do sustainability. I said, well, what do you want to do? We don't know, but everybody else is doing it. And I think that's a bit here that we, we know it's a, a threat, a hazard, a risk, a vulnerability, but we don't know what to do about it. And that's one reason why we're expanding some of our research. And um, you know, I, I teach supply chain management at Michigan State. And one of the things we're doing with students is starting to understand those basics of cybersecurity. And I think that's a key to have conversations as we did 10 years ago, 15 years ago with food fraud to talk about cybersecurity as an industry so we don't overreact but so that we're optimal and we do uh, protect the, the supply chain and that we do protect food safety absolutely john i can't wait for your presentation in just a few hours time thank you so much for your time and enjoy the guinness storehouse this evening i hear you're uh, going on a little trip i'm very jealous yes thank you it's going to be a very nice night i'm sure great stuff thank you very much john. You're welcome. So great, same again, I'll go to you first. What, what do you think, what do you think you'd like to say? Well, I thought what he was saying about transparency in the food industry was really interesting because there's this whole argument that companies need to be transparent so consumers know what's going on. But also food fraudsters, the more they know, the more they can kind of play the game. 
So yeah, it's, it's a difficult line, isn't it's it? It's hard, isn't it? I mean, his first, the first thing that shocked me, and he said it in, in, in the interview, and it's also his, his first slide for his presentation later that day, was that Food Force has attended events like these. Yeah. And I was sitting, I was like, a little MI5 agents just sneaking around. But I said to him, I said, do you reckon that's true? And he said, why on earth wouldn't they? And when he said that, I thought, yeah, you know what, you're right. It's yeah. like, the example it's like he the used, elephant in the room. Yeah, and the example he used was, like, if there was a conference on how to catch bank robbers, yeah. Bank robbers would go to that conference yeah. to learn. You thought, well, of course they would. So yeah. then you're sort of sat in your chair looking around at people being like, oh, you? And no, of course not. Um, really interesting. And as you said, that whole transparency debate is a fascinating one because we push for transparency so much in the food industry, and rightly so. Mm-hmm. Um, and from a, from, certainly from a journalist's point of view, I want everything to open. I want to be able to see everything, read yeah. everything, and then we can make a judgment. But mm-hmm. he is right. You can't play all your cards, can you? Because no. then everyone knows. I mean, what he said about you want you can't tell them how you're going to catch them but you want them to know that you are going to catch them and i thought that was really interesting i think what he was saying was that people want to catch these fraudsters before anything bad happens in the industry rather than acting once it has happened or almost not even catch people it's 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 prevent it yeah it's well if i use the bank robbery analogy again it's like great you can catch people that rob the bank but the money's gone yeah it's too late at that point damage has been done you, what you want is to have such a... With crime punishments, there's, there's, there's two things that deter crime, right? There's, um, from my... I mean, again, if you did criminology at university, do right... It's the old degree coming out again. No, no, I didn't did history. But there are two things historically that deter crime. Like, severity of punishment or, mm-hmm. like, free, like, likelihood of being caught. Mm-hmm. So if you're not going to catch people, so for example, like in 18th, this is probably in the British now, isn't it? Not for a food podcast. <laughs> in that 19th century, like Britain, for example, chances of catching anybody were pretty slim. No mm-hmm. forensics. I mean, they were taking like photographs of people's eyes because they thought the, the, yeah. the killer would be in them. <laughs> but chance of catching anyone, very slim. Penalties, pretty severe. Yeah. Might end up on a ship to Australia, for example. Pretty, pretty bad. Nowadays, for example, the likelihood of, be- of being caught it outweighs the likelihood of not being caught, really. Yeah, it's high. So, yeah. okay, our punishment aren't so big, that's because more people are caught. Yeah. So, I suppose, to, to scare a criminal, you've even got to, The punishment's got to be so severe that it's just not off the risk. Or, it's not off the risk because you're likely to get caught. And certainly, the second option, the second route, is where the food industry is going. Yeah. So, you really want to, yeah, put the fear of, put the fear of God to people and, like, make it known that you are, you are going to catch them. Yeah, well, in an ideal world, food fraud wouldn't happen, but that is not the case. I feel like it's always going to be it's always gonna lingering happen. in and the industry, always, yeah. To say that always once per head is probably not, not necessarily correct, because there's some amazing work done to prevent food fraud by both John at um, Michigan State and, and I mean, Chris Elliott, who we've spoken yeah. to several times, yeah. um, at the Institute for Global Food Security. But there is... There are always once per head, almost. They, they're always moving quickly. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing that, that John said in his presentation, I don't know if he, um, he didn't actually mention it in the interview, but he mentioned it in the presentation later on that day, was how quickly criminals adapt to the situation. So for example, Russia invades Ukraine in March, yeah? Yeah. Like by May, John said they released, like Mission State, his team released a report saying that there's definitely food fraud. And he sort of said, oh, people are saying, where's your data? Where's your data? There isn't any data. Mm. There's not many data for years, but we yeah. know it's happening. Yeah. Look at sunflower. It's look scary. At, it's scary. Look at the price of sunflower oil. Yeah. The vast majority of sunflower oil comes from, especially certainly in Europe, comes from Ukraine. Mm-hmm. That the price of that triples, quadruples, quintuples overnight, probably mm-hmm. more. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you then produce counterfeit sunflower oil and sell it cheaper? There's a, all of a sudden there's a market. Yeah, I see what you're saying. You're sounding a bit suspicious here, Josh. I think it's just my cynical nature, but. It's, it makes sense, right? They're, they're, okay, there might be illegal business people, but they are business people. Yeah. And there's a market created. Russia invades Ukraine. There is a market for certain foodstuffs. So they're going to fill overnight. that market gap, yeah. Yeah, but there wasn't... Take the UK, for example. Take the UK. It's a lot harder to get certain animal produce into the UK because of the rules for Brexit. Are we going to see more... Counter, not counterfeit meat, but are we going to see more unregulated meat for the UK market? There's no data. Mm. John would have you believe you yeah, absolutely. Look at Chris. Chris Elliott. Well, so the, exactly the same thing. If there's money to be made, people are going to try and make they're it. They're going to try and make it. And I mean, that's two bit. John and Chris Elliott spoke to you know, in the last couple of months have both said, look, times are getting tougher. It's mm-hmm. becoming a lot, things are getting more expensive. Yeah. That's when the bad actors move in. They see a niche. So disconcerting chat with John. But I'll tell you what, when you speak to John, 
I mean, you're glad that he's on the case. Yeah, you feel so like it's all the time. He knows his stuff, and you're kind of like, John and Chris Elliott, when you speak to them, they might frighten you, but then by the end you think, <laughs> yeah, but you know what, we've got our best people on the case. Like, they know what they're doing. So, no, um, really interesting to speak to John. And as I said, he'll be speaking at Food Integrity on cybersecurity. I can't wait for that panel session at Food Integrity. Yeah, I just feel like it's going to unfold even more. And yeah. Even more to talk about on the podcast. Yeah, even more to talk on the podcast, exactly. I'm sure we'll cover that. I'm sure we'll do a little follow-up. I'm sure we will yeah. afterwards. Um, I spoke to one last interviewee at FOX in my short time there. Um, that was Wayne at Marsendow from University of Lincoln. Let's see what Wayne had to say, shall we? Yep, let's. So we're live from FOS 2022 at the fabulous Aviva Stadium, formerly Lansdowne Road. I certainly know it as Lansdowne Road. I'm joined by the brilliant Wayne Martindale from University of Lincoln. Wayne, lovely to see you again this morning. Hello, Josh. It's great to meet you at last. We're big fans of new food at NCFM in Lincoln. Well, that's always great to hear, Wayne. It's always a nice way to start an interview by somebody saying they're a big fan. So uh, this probably won't be the grilling that I was, uh, I was preparing for. <laughs> that was the big idea. Yeah, you've, you've thrown me off guard, <laughs> charm me straight away. Um, I just wanted to grab you, first of all, to speak a little bit more about what you discussed in your brilliant talk yesterday, and also to ask you about the conference. Let's start there. You said to me yesterday over a pint of Guinness, it's your first FOS since 2019. What's, what's changed about Dublin? What's different about Dublin? Um, I think what's been really striking at FOS 2022 is the young, early career researchers that have attended. There's around about 30% of attendees that are under 25. Um, that's really unusual for me to see and it's a fantastic thing to see because we've got to think about um, how we're going to attract talent. These people are very bright and um, eager about research and it's up to people like me to mentor and guide them through so they can actually apply their research. So I think that's really, really exciting and it's something that you don't see all the time. Um, a young audience um, at a research conference where sometimes I think the barriers to coming along when you're younger are probably like, oh, I don't really want to go there because I'm not quite expert yet. Well, that's clearly broken the barrier here. Absolutely. Well, I'm certainly not an expert and, I, and I'm here. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Why do you think it's here that at Air Force that barrier is broken? Because you're spot on. When we go to conferences around the world, the audience is often a bit more mature than we're seeing here. Why are there so many young people here? Well, I, I think, one, it's a federation um, and it's pan-European. So um, you get a whole lot of different attitudes to research and learning coming together. And I think, I think that's when you tend to break down those barriers and inhibitions around expertise and being elitist about skills and techniques and things like that. And it's a very open forum and I think um, EFOS needs to be congratulated for that. Absolutely, Wayne. Now, yesterday you gave a really, really interesting talk. For those that weren't able to get over to Dublin for the conference, very briefly, what are you discussing and why is it so important? I was introducing my, my research group at the National Centre for Food Manufacturing at the University of Lincoln, Food Insights and Sustainability. And the thing there that we've built up over five years is how do we build sustainability cues into food and beverage supply chains and products so that those messages are resonant with consumers. And next year in, in January, we have a really exciting project starting called S3. Smart people, smart processes, smart factories with a company called Rainer Foods in Chelmsford in Essex and also a vertical farm company called Let Us Grow and the University of Cambridge. But the key thing about S3 project is that we're integrating the human dimension into reporting sustainability in our manufacturing supply chain because I've been carbon footprinting for about 25 years now and we can carbon footprint really well we more or less know what to do if we want a carbon net zero industry but the thing that always messes that up is how we behave as operators in that industry and also consumers we don't switch things off we use things in different ways and we move around in very chaotic fashions so understanding that system is really, really important if we want to get all the sustainable outcomes that we're, we're hoping for. That's all very interesting and very, very important. What I was struck by at your talk was just how, though a brilliant idea that it is, I was struck by why, why has this not been done before? You'd think that people should be at the centre of any strategy. 
why is why has this not been done before and why have the impact the chaotic impact of humans not been not been considered when, when we talk about sustainability I, th- I think really successful organisations get that and you know I'm not going to name companies and organisations, we know who those organisations and companies are who put people at the very centre of that and make it work and engage and build communities around that. But what we're fantastic at doing as an industry is overlooking those issues and that's the reason why. Um, when I joined the food industry about 25 years ago from agriculture, Um, a very senior um, industry professional to me said you know the most most expensive thing in the food industry to get right is understanding what people want understanding what consumers want and at the time I thought that was a kind of you know I, I didn't really consider that comment too important but as my career has gone on it is the most important thing getting getting the people and the human dimension part of our industry right is absolutely crucial if we want to get to a sustainable food system absolutely it's the thing is that aspect that's often often forgotten another important part of this issue again someone we discussed yesterday of that lovely pint of guinness was communicating effectively with both with industry and with consumers and you ventured i think rightly so that often the academia side of our industry is not always adept at doing that why aren't they adept at doing that and do you think that conferences like this are important in in, in driving the message and getting it to the people that need to hear it well you know um guinness is probably a great um beverage for for oiling conversation <laughs> it's a good listener um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not i'm not i'm not promoting the fact that perhaps um people who can't do that should um should um have a pint of guinness but i think i think expertise does tend to stifle openness and communication and you know in academia we we are an expert community we we know an awful lot and what we've got to do more and more is connect that expertise and understanding to application while still maintaining a really rigorous research portfolio and that's a really hard thing to do balance those two things up and not many people do it and I hope that myself and my colleagues at the University of Lincoln do walk that line very well and deliver on that line. I think you certainly do. Wayne, thank you so much for your time today. Um, looking forward to getting you on the podcast in a bit more depth, hopefully in the future. Uh, let's hope it's the debut appearance, not, not, not an only appearance. Yeah, thank you, Josh. Uh, yeah, I look forward to that as well. Thank you for the opportunity of speaking to you today. Not at all. Speak to you soon. So, Josh, what do you think were the key takeaway messages from your chat with Wayne? Yeah, I think him, again, just emphasising how important is that young people mm-hmm. so many young people were at FOS so to hear that from two different people separately just reinforces how important that was and how apparent it was when you were there what I found really interesting was the work that he's doing in terms of throwing humans into the mix yeah that I was mean, really good he, he kind of implied that they can wreak havoc a bit <laughs> you, you don't know what they're going to do they're unpredictable that's it isn't it I mean he said like we're very very good at modelling yeah. but in the food industry we can work out on every sort of step of the production line the supply yeah. chain this is how much this is the how much uh, this is the price the, the climate price mm-hmm. on this pro- of this process on the environment but then humans just do random things when we do like there is no you can't you can only pattern human behaviour so much you might turn it on you might leave it on because you forget you can't mm-hmm. account for that um, and that's what the work he's doing is, is trying to account for that yeah, well, humans create more work for humans. They certainly do. <laughs> but yeah, I thought it was really, really interesting. Yeah. And the other thing that I thought was great was that acknowledgement from him about the academic community needing to interact perhaps a bit more with the industry and communicate effectively. Yeah. Whenever I speak to the academic community, they're so knowledgeable and they're yeah. so helpful and, mm-hmm. and, and, and they're such a powerful tool for the food and beverage industry. They're at the forefront of, of, of research. Mm. Do I think the academic community always communicates in the best possible way? I'm not sure they do. It's like they've got blinkers on for their research and they just want to find out as much as possible about the subject they're researching. But they could get so much out of just speaking to the industry a bit more and translating what they're doing into like more layman terms almost. Uh, layman terms and also just practicalities. Like, yeah. like uh, what are the practical uses and implications of your research? Yeah. I always find academia, and, and you, you've been to university, so have I. Yeah. It's an echo chamber, isn't it? Like, you're kind of in university and, like, nothing else. That's, that's your world. Nothing around it, yeah. But actually, the, I mean, oh, I did history. There's other degrees that are a lot more practical than that. I mean, I did history. When you're doing, like, when you're in the weeds of 
19th century American politics. Like, yeah. doesn't really matter. Like, there isn't uh, what's going on. There's no as an application of that outside. I mean, there is. If you actually sit down and look at the lessons, you can apply them to today's politics and learn. Yeah. Same with your course of linguistics. Like, there's. I feel like 15 pages deep into Google Scholar, you just you don't know what's going on at that point. No. You're just so focused <laughs> on the key words and trying to just understand what the articles are saying. But I mean, people like Wayne are, are operating at far, far higher level than we ever did. Oh, but, yeah, undergraduate but, degrees. I mean, no, it's a completely exactly. different ball game. It's like an intro course, isn't it? But the way. <laughs> I just thought that was a really interesting point that Wayne made that they, they know their stuff they're so good at research and so good at collecting information it's just about communicating that effectively yeah do I think that the industry interacts and, it, and uses utilises academia in the right way I'm not sure they do either I'm not sure all those two groups I think of it makes a semi good start I think it research that's being done is read by industry professionals but I just don't think it kind of takes off as much as it could do if it was communicated more effectively no maybe not I mean that's the that's kind of what we as, uh, well, sorry, kind of that's what we want that's what we do at New Food it's yeah. we, we take because we do a lot with with research don't we, we yeah we, research we, and analysing what this means for our industry precisely that we, 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 we take research we, we analyse it we package it in a way that make sense for our readers for, for the industry so no I thought that was a really really interesting point that he made um, yeah really uh, it's one that I've not heard many academics make either no, hopefully we'll hear more, more of it in the future well we will and um, I did ask but that I, might be because they don't realise they need to kind of adapt the way they're working no maybe not I think they're two very different communities right I think the food and beverage industry you got that I mean it's such a it, it's strange in a way because so many of the top food and beverage employees are, are all, they're scientists right they're yeah. scientists they come from academia but I think that the practicalities of their job are so different from those of those that still work at university or in a research point yeah. of view so I think more practical applications of research perhaps are a bit necessary but I mean who are we to say we yeah. sat here in a room chatting away <laughs> it's just an observation that I made and I, what I must admit what I did find at EFOS was that's changing yeah. I found at EFOS so many and it's largely academia, it's largely academic talks. Mm-hmm. So many of them geared towards, look, what does this mean for the industry? What does this mean for the consumer? What does this mean? What does it actually mean in the real world? We've done the research, we've done our studies mm-hmm. in our, at the university, mm-hmm. in our institutions. What does this actually mean for people out there in the world today? And I thought that was really powerful and that's mm-hmm. exactly how academic, academic research should be used, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I think consumer insight is so important for the industry. It's what should fuel changes yeah. as well as academia. So it's kind of... Bit of a, this is a bit of a side point, but just for you to consumer change drive, consumer behaviour drive change. I actually heard the opposite at FOS. Somebody said that really? consumer behaviour is the slowest driver of change. It's like the Compared slowest. To... Almost in a way that industry should. I suppose the inference there is that industry industry drives consumer, consumer behaviour, right. not so the other way around. I, I do see that side as well. Do you think? Maybe I retract my point. Do you think? Do you think that. Well, if they're going to say a new product's made by a food brand. Consumers are going to want to try it, and that might take off. So that they wouldn't have. I just don't think people take tweeting, for example, saying they want a product. If consumers put or if industry puts it on the table in front of them, consumers are likely to try it. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like, um, I mean, if you take sustainability, I have an example. Take like recycling plastic. Mm-hmm. We mandate plastic recycling mm. as, as, as societies, and so we do it as as consumers. Then we do it. Mm. Like nobody's like pushing for that beforehand. I suppose yeah. it's, inter- it's, inter- it's chicken egg, isn't it? I think the, the truth of the matter is probably they're, they're both important. I think yeah. consumers certainly do drive change. Mm-hmm. I think you're right that that initial adoption is driven by industry. Industry says, "Look, here's something that we think you need." Mm-hmm. But then it sparks cons- interest. But then consumers adapt to that and then drive further development within that. So, for example take let's just take like plant-based the industry said like right look you need plant-based mints for example or oat milk yeah and then consumers then purchase and this is an example and consumers purchase oat milk yeah and then all of a sudden other businesses other manufacturers think oh look at that that's doing quite well we'll make white milk too yeah. so i feel like oh, it's, people it's, just jump on the trend it's, it's, it's chicken egg isn't it but i just thought it's really just the point like i don't know we hear so much about how consumer behaviour is, and as a as that's the beauty about our industry, we write about it. But everyone's a consumer of food. Yeah, it's not like I'm I a, think that when I see something that I per, I personally purchase, and I'm writing on it. I just think it's so interesting. There's not many there's not many B two B publications where you are everyone's a consumer of the thing you write about. I mean, yeah. like if you write about plumbing, then 
not everyone buys plumbing tools. Yeah, you know, no. Many plumbers buy plumbing tools. Whereas everyone hates, everyone drinks. So we all, we're always told as consumers that it's your behaviour that drives change and you can do this. And actually, a couple of people said, well, you know what? It doesn't. Consumers, Which made you think that was the whole point of the event? Think, that's the whole point of the event. It wasn't just to drink Guinness somewhere in Dublin. Um, <laughs> did a lot of that too, though. No, it was great. It's a cracking event. Three really interesting interviews and really different points. Um, so thank you so much to Rowan and John and Wayne for sharing a few minutes of what was a very, very busy few days with me. Um, yeah, I loved it. Maybe next time we can get you out as well. Yeah, I'd love to go. To well, you've been, so like, you can take me around. Well, yeah, and also I was going to say, read Dubliners, James Joyce, if you like Dublin. Really enjoyed it. This is the English literature bit. Come on, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. See, no, no, no. We like, we like, we like, we like bringing our. Uh, I mean, you know, me always bang about the history. So yeah, yeah. so I'll bring the book knowledge. You bring the, the book knowledge. Now. Yeah, do it, do it. And this has been an episode of Food to Go, brought to you by New Food. Great. When I think what we're doing, a little end of the roundup. Yeah, that's on the agenda. That's the plan. For um, so maybe that might be a little Christmas present for listeners. We'll drop that. Maybe we'll drop that at like Christmas time. Okay. Little, I'm sure they'll love that. I'm sure they'll love that. Yeah, a little highlight reel of, new, of food to go for 2022. I think, yeah. we'll pick, I think we're going to pick like our favourite bits. I mean, you're quite new on the scene, so yeah. you'll have to listen back and hear me and Beth waffle on. But there was definitely a part where you and Beth actually, I won't spoil it. Don't spoil it. Keep your powder dry. Okay. People will do like favourite interviews, favourite that kind of thing. You know, yeah. Like little, new food awards maybe. Yeah, nice. Yeah. What a treat. What a treat. No, I look forward to that. So that's coming up next. Um, Food Safety Live is on demand, you can catch yep. that. Um, if you visit the Nuclear website under the events tab, you'll find um, a link there to, to register. You can still watch every session of that on demand. There are some cracking sessions, so you really don't want to miss that. Really, really yeah. interesting. Um, food Safety Conference from Twickenham, that's also on demand, isn't yeah. it? Yep, that's there. And then, as so I said, you want to hear more of Josh's voice, you yeah, can, you can hear me. I mean, it's eight hours of me, so um, none of me, but some of Josh, none of Grace, but there is eight hours. You can hear Grace typing yeah, <laughs> a lot of it, yeah, <laughs> smashing, frantic typing, frantically <laughs> smashing the keys. Um, and food and take to the US January 24th yeah I'm really excited for that yeah I'm excited for that fantastic so get that in your diaries so yeah last proper podcast 2022 shall we say and we've got the awards show later on in the year yeah how um, exciting how exciting how exciting very long outro <laughs> you might have to cut this down a little bit we really have to cut it out aren't we um, thank you so much for listening as ever you can subscribe to food to go on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you can also find the entire back catalogue on the New Food website underneath podcasts. So do give that a visit and you can hear everything that we've done for the last couple of years on there. There's some really, really great episodes, so make sure you check that out. But thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.